Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lost Teams podcast. I am your co-host Anthony Cerdelli here with my fellow co-host Andrew Lennox. Andrew, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How you doing, Anthony? Doing well, thanks. We have a special treat for you guys today, a special guest, a friend of mine coming on to tell us a story of a defunct hockey team, Steve Duncan of NHL Pearls of Wisdom. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, so I'm pretty excited to be on with you guys. This is awesome. Who are you going to tell us about today? What lost team? Well, we're going to go into the Philadelphia Blazers and uh, their one year, which was packed full of controversy and events and uh it had a huge effect on the league uh of the nhl for that matter and the wha really um and its impact that uh that was and just the whole story is is absolutely fascinating yeah it is a great one and andrew anything you any well how about you are you uh uh, you're definitely did some research on the Blazers as well. How do you, how do you feel about it? I, I think it's going to be exciting to learn a little bit more. Uh, my source was NHL brass blocks Hull's shot from Russia, from Russia written by Ted Blackman from the Montreal Gazette. Uh, my source was www.ucities.com. Uh, right or not uh, given. And the other one was a www.flyershistory.com, also right or not given. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get started, Steve. Let's hear the story of the Philadelphia Blazers. Okay. Well, first off, um, they were originally a Miami franchise, Screaming Eagles, and uh, the owner there appeared to be uh, like I think a lot of people in the WHA that owned them using it as a way to expose their company and expose themselves. Uh, it, it's common. That's what people do when they buy franchises. It's almost like advertising in itself. However, things kind of went awry and then all of it, he, he had to pony up a hundred thousand dollars as a league for, to the league and couldn't come up with it. So, um, it was in flux for a while. Didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And then uh, Bernard Brown and James Cooper, who made their money in the freight industry, uh, actually Cooper is sort of like his lawyer. Bernard Brown was really the main money behind the project. And uh, a lot of it they had decided to buy uh, it from them. And after a couple days, named them the Blazers. Um, the funny thing, uh, the freight industry has kind of been known for maybe some CD ownership at the time. Who knows? I can't say for sure. But um, <laughs> Mafia has been known to be buying into those sort of projects back then. So oh, I'm, uh, I'm sure maybe, in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, in the 70s. So maybe that might kind of explain the events as they go. It, it kind of is as it goes on. Um, there was a lot of seemingly lack of preparation here. It looked like they were almost bought in a whim. Uh, after that, they had a great goaltender and Bernie Perrant that was already playing for Miami. They worked out a contract for him uh, right away. And a contract it sure was. Uh, before he played, um, before they signed him up, he was making $20,000 a year. I got this off of Wealth Simple Magazine. For some reason, back in the day, they did a little bit of a piece on him. They gave him a three-year, $750,000 contract. Holy cow. Wow. wow. Yeah, that was uh, that's quite a contract that uh, Bernie Perrant there got. And, and even going back to 
the the founding of their franchise when they're in the Miami. I read that they didn't have a place to play, like they didn't have an arena to play in, and so they were considering playing in an arena that had no roof, which oh. in Miami makes no sense. It screams like no preparation whatsoever, like you were saying. Do you think yeah. there was any uh, even rinks in Miami at that time? <laughs> Anywhere, any skating rinks? Uh, probably not. Uh, that <laughs> would explain why they were just scrambling to find wherever they could put uh, a team. Right. And, um, the, like I said, this Philadelphia franchise was the same. They took, they got this Philadelphia Civic Center. Actually, they went to the Philadelphia Flyers first and asked if they could use their facilities. And the Flyers were just not game with having their competition play. They're like, no. You're not of doing course that. not. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I, they didn't really think this through at all. Um, also, there seems to be an error, uh, element of arrogance through it all. Like everything's just going to go because we are who we are. Anyways, they said, "Okay, fine." They got the, the uh, Philadelphia Civic Center. They could fit twelve thousand people in the Civic Center, which had never had ice before. Oh no! And um, they'd never had ice in there before, but they paid the money. And they did it. Uh, they said that they, this is where we're going to go. To give themselves notoriety, as teams were wanting to do at that time, they went searching for a player that they could pin their, their organization on. And that comes to the huge contract uh, offered to Derek Sanderson at the time. He was playing for the Boston Bruins. And when I say huge... I mean huge, $2.6 million contract with this new team. Um, he he uh, stepped out of the shadows of a, of, a, of a great Boston team and decided he was going to take the plunge um, there. Brought up a lot of problems with the NHL. It brought up a lot of um, strife with the owners of the NHL because in their minds, this is a player that isn't, wasn't a superstar in the league. It's not like it was Hall, which had happened previously. It was a semi-star player. And um, they were shaken already because this was they knew already in advance this was probably going to affect how much they pay their players oh, yeah. somewhere down the road, right? So they were very unhappy about it, but he went through with it anyways. Um, t- took the contract, came in apparently – there was talk already that he was not really taking care of himself, that he was sort of out of shape. Now, I heard different uh, stories on this, but the one particular story that I found, um, said, has a, he, he even said himself that he wasn't really in shape by the time the first game came up. So, <laughs> wow. um, which, like, again, they, uh, Derek Sanderson was, a, was kind of a Hollywood-type guy at the time he was somebody that was always socializing he was out in social events he was very well known to the people and he enjoyed having fun so I would say and I'm filling in the gaps here they thought that that would be a great guy to have that could be part of the community and uh, really build this up Um, as it turns out it didn't work out exactly the way they wanted it to. And um, and Sanderson, really, like the team he played on, I, I was thinking of this before, the team he played on in Boston, you wonder if that kind of was uh, definitely his personality, like a showy guy, but also just trying to get the attention. I mean, that that seventies early 70s Boston team with Orr and Busick and Esposito and 
Cashman and just like Johnny Busick. I already said Johnny Busick, just an incredible Terry O'Reilly was already on the team at that point. McKenzie. Yeah. I mean, that was a stacked team. You kind of had to like be showy to stick out from that. And, and one more thing, I, I read a story, I forget where, I think it might've been in his book where he said that he flew to Hawaii on a whim with like a couple of models, just with the clothes on his back, uh, bought a pair of golf clubs there and then played golf left like 24 or 48 hours later, getting a real bad sunburn. And then just as a tip, he gave his caddy his golf clubs that he just bought. Like that's just a r- ridiculous. I also read somewhere that he, him and Joe Namath owned a club, a nightclub in New York city at one time. So he yeah, was living they, that high life for sure. They opened a few more in Boston too. Oh, right? really? I think around the country. Yeah. I think uh, for, I'll look it's up like what it was called. called like players or something. Something yeah. like that. There was one that came in Boston called like Daisy Buchanan's or something. I don't know if it was that one specifically, but um, there was one that still existed. I think till, till the last couple of years that Sanderson nope. opened. Oh, interesting. Um, but yeah, continue. I mean, Sanderson's a flashy guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that wasn't, they weren't done yet. They also grabbed McKenzie as well from, uh, from Boston at the time, who was to be a player coach, paid him $300,000 for three years. I mean, they're just throwing money all over the place here. Player coach, Um, Reg Dunlop. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is, um, he McKenzie would fracture his arm oh. in the first game. Um, after the first game, it was an exhibition game, and he would fracture fracture his arm on the post, on a post, which was just the beginning of a lot of um, events that kind of made you almost say, "Okay, are these like telling you something about the future of this team?" Uh, they the this they got it all together and they they managed to patchwork everything so they had ice problem was the zamboni that they ordered and i um it took me a little bit to find this information because i wanted to find out why they hadn't put a zamboni on the ice until the day of the first game that they were going to play (laughs) um the, the, they didn't get the Zamboni until the first game they were going to play. They actually didn't even have a Zamboni for the, an exhibition game that happened before that. I'll tell a little story about that, and then I'll go into the very <laughs> first game. Uh, the exhibition game where he broke his arm, uh, there was uh, only 67 people in the seats. Uh, what <laughs> Perot counted... 67. 67. The Perot counted the, the people in the seats before the game and said, I am not playing and risking injury, especially back in those days. I mean, goalies got injured quite a bit. They got hurt. They played hurt a lot. They didn't have padding. They didn't have uh, a no lot masks. of things that they do did, today. Yeah. Did goalies and carry three? Or, I'm sorry. Did um, teams carry three goalies back then? Like, I don't know. No, I don't think so. It was pretty much, I mean, Hall played five. That was well before, but uh, there was no talk of a backup goaltender, but there must have been. (laughs) Uh, There was no talk of it back then because he skated off the ice and said, I'm not playing in front of 67 people and risking injury. There's just no way. (laughs) And uh, Sanderson went back to talk him out of it. And what ended up happening, ended up actually happening was Perrant told convinced him not to go on the ice either. So he didn't go on the ice. (laughs) They both didn't go on the ice. 
on that game. Now, remember, they didn't even have a Zamboni for that game. I imagine they would have ordered the Zamboni for that game, but it never, they never did have a Zamboni until That's the crazy. very, I know, until the very first game of the season. Um, so the first game of the season comes, uh, they're already without McKenzie because McKenzie broke his arm in that game. The Parat said, I'm not going on because I don't want to get injured, right? Uh, I'm not going to play in front of 67 fans. First game of the season comes on. The Civic Center's there. They somehow managed to get ice. I still, I would have thought that you would have needed a Zamboni to do that back in the day, but obviously they must have did some fancy flooding or something. Can you imagine and, how bad the ice was? Yeah, <laughs> I would imagine it would have been terrible. And, and the stuff. skates back then, it's not like they had $600 skates as they do right. now. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they might have been expensive at the time, but I mean, right, they certainly right. wouldn't have been what we use today. Pretty much, they had to call off the game. So, <laughs> nobody, the, the owners at the time, Cooper, they didn't want to go down. Nobody wanted to say anything. And Derek Sanderson, as bold as he is, he seems like he was a very bold guy. He decided he was going to go on the ice and tell everybody that, um, they uh, are no longer going to be able to play the game. Now, there's something I, I forgot to mention here, I should mention now. One of the perks about going to the first game was they gave everybody an orange puck. So he goes out on the ice, and he, the referee says, what are you doing? And he goes, well, uh, Zamboni went through the ice, and I'm going to have to – somebody has to tell these guys they got to go home. Um, he goes, and the referee says, oh, great, 12,000 people are going to have to go home with only one exit oh. as they have to go out on the uh, on the out. So he does. He does do that. He goes out and tells them. And the people start peppering the ice with all these orange pucks. Caught oh, up and he has to run off the ice. So that's basically what happened at the first game for the Philadelphia Phantoms. I'm sorry, did I say Phantoms? Blazers. That's par for the course of Philadelphians. I mean, I think that would happen in any city now if, if they had such a mess of a first game. But, uh, Who gives out uh, pucks? Yeah, Philadelphia. <laughs> Philadelphia Blazers. Sorry about that. Yeah. And uh, so that was their first, that was their first game. Um, just an absolute disaster. Um, it did, so. And then um, not long after that, um, it doesn't really specifically say when Derek Sanderson slips on a piece of paper on the ice, hurts his back, and is out for uh, a very long time. I, I think the, the quotes that I found for that uh, are pretty funny. Um, in the newspaper, it was from an article called uh, Sanderson Will Take the $1 Million um, by Gerald Eskenazi in 1973, the New York Times. He just burns, he just roasts pretty much everyone. So um the at that time i think that was right after after sanderson injured his back that was kind of when uh <laughs> um sanderson was looking to to leave the team and and maybe go back to the bruins or another wha team in in new york and the, that's why the the times is covering it and it says that they wrote it's not known whether the paper was a dollar bill <laughs> although and that the wha team was the raiders so it's not known whether the paper was a dollar bill, although a Raider official said yesterday that maybe the piece of paper he slipped on fell out of his wallet. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. So he, hurt, he hurts his back, and um, Cooper, the lawyer, who actually was the one that um, thought of 
signing Derek Sanderson. All through this, he got some sort of indication that maybe Derek is playing this up or not doing what he's supposed to or what have you. And uh, they work out a buyout with his agent. Um, there was a lot of media about this, this whole thing that was going on. Um, Derek thought he was going to come back. He tried to come back. They wouldn't put him on the ice. He, he, he being their best player, he, they sat him every game. Now he showed up every game. Uh, eventually they worked out a buyout and he bought, they bought him out for a million dollars on his contract. How many games did he end up playing for Philadelphia? Six. You know? That's it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. That is incredible. And the, I saw uh, someone calculated how many, like what he made per goal. $333,333 per goal for playing for the Philadelphia Blazers. Yeah. I wonder what that would amount to today. Oh, uh, that's, I can. That's like Alex know. Rodriguez numbers. Yeah, <laughs> that is. Now, the funny thing is, things started turning out a lot better after this. Uh, McKenzie came back, and so did Perrant, who also did get injured as well. And uh, they um, started getting into a playoff race. Uh, also, Danny Lawson, uh, who they got from the Buffalo Sabres, um, ended up having being the first player in WHA history to score 50 goals. Nice. Wow. Yeah. That was, and, and LaCroix, um, who they've got from the Philadelphia Flyers, these were lesser-known players that didn't put up huge points in the league, but they didn't do too bad in the NHL. And LaCroix became the leading scorer for the Blazers and led in scoring in the league that year for the WHA and also became the seventh highest in WHA history after that. Who was the, who was the highest? Was it Bobby Hall? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I didn't check that it's out. It's got to be, right? Well, Gretzky, didn't Gretzky technically play one year of WHA hockey in, what, 79 when they when the Oilers were still the WHA? I wonder if it was him. No, I don't think Hall it was. Had, no, Hall had some great years in Winnipeg. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he would have been there long enough. Um, so as it turns out, it, 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 they actually did end up making the playoffs. Um, problem was... Not long after that, um, part of Bernie Perrant's contract was that he would get paid regardless if the WHA closed off or not, closed up or not. And they had a special account for him that showed the money that he was going to make the money for sure. They had an account for him that he could see at any time, his agent could. Um, just after the playoffs that, uh, Perrant decided for some reason to tell his agent to make sure the money is in there or just before the playoffs or while the playoffs were going, cause he did play the first couple games, the money was gone. Cooper had apparently <laughs> decided to leave, didn't want to be part of it anymore. And, uh, there was only one owner and nobody knows exactly what happened with the money, but he quit the team right there. So they ended up losing in the first round and four games uh, because they basically really didn't have a goaltender. Um, that, wow. Yeah. That it's, so it was just one thing after another with the organization. However, a lot of great things came out of it. Um, it really affected 
the uh, players' salaries in the NHL after that. They started realizing that they could have a team or an org- the WHA could compete with their salaries and take players like that. Um, after yep. all the talk about how Derek Sanderson uh, what shouldn't be getting that kind of money and all of that sort of thing. He still was a pretty darn good player for the, for the Bruins at the time. And they didn't want to lose right. players like that. So it affected the, the, the salaries for players in the NHL down the road. And it actually even affected the salaries of the WHA players too, because owners, sure. the owners of the WHA started saying, well, we better start paying our guys or we're going to have another league come in and do this. Um, so it, it, there was a lot of good that came out of it. Now, as it turns out, there's something I found interesting. Even though they had all of this happen, and even though the Philadelphia Flyers were in Philadelphia at the time, they still drew 4,000 people on average per game for, for that year. However, this was apparently not enough money for them to keep the team, and the team was sold to uh, Vancouver the year after this. Now I'm very surprised that again, the showing the lack of preparation, how many people did you expect to have in a building um, in a WHA environment for your first year in a city that already had an NHL city? 4,000 was the 4,000 was not going to be enough to, to, to begin with, or did they just realize that it wasn't going to be enough? I think it's more the latter than the other. And it really just shows the lack of preparation and seemingly doing things right on the fly through this whole, whole, uh, procedure. Absolutely. I mean, starting at 67 fans and getting up to around the 4,000, not bad. I I feel, I I feel like if our podcast can accomplish that, we'll be thrilled. (laughs) Pee wee team gets 67 fans. Yeah, all parents, both parents. From <laughs> but here's a, I found a couple of things we were looking for. So um, the WHA, the all-time leader in WHA points is Andre Lacroix. He had 251 goals, 547 assists, and 551 games played. Hull came in third huh. uh, overall with 411 games played, 303 goals, 335 assists. And then the all-time season scoring record went to Mark Tardif, 1977-78. <laughs> Scored 65 goals and had 89 assists. Now, I don't know what team Tardif played for. <laughs> Let me look. And LaCroix uh, played for the Blazers, as you mentioned, right, Steve? Yeah. yeah. He played for Vancouver, and I do believe he even went to the Calgary Cowboys after that. Uh, the Calgary Cowboys. Yeah, that was the next that, – that, that's where the, it finished off was the Calgary Cowboys. <laughs> And it looks like um, so. It looks like Tardif played for the Nordiques, the Quebec Nordiques, right. uh, at least for a little bit of the time. And he ended up playing um, in the, the NHL as well. A little bit more about uh, Derek Sanderson. Actually, just going back to him for a second, he was actually being considered in 1971 for Team Canada for the uh, 72 Summit Series against uh, Russia, the USSR at the time. Um, Sanderson, Jerry Cheevers, goaltender Jerry Cheevers, and JC. Trombley were actually blocked from playing in this series due to being in the process of assigning WHA contracts. Wow. So, yeah, so Sanderson was pretty, you know, well thought about if he was being considered for Team Canada, that's for sure. Well, they say he's a real good penalty killer, like shorthanded, kind of like a Marshan. I, mean, I imagine him kind of like a Marshan type, but continue, sorry. Right. And then actually Bobby, Bobby Hall had a contract with the Winnipeg Jets already and didn't play in the series also. So those are four key guys that could have been on that team. 
And uh, the 72 Summit Series was actually obviously a huge moment in Canadian history um, for those who don't know about it. And uh, Team Canada actually ended up winning the series four to four, three, one. There was a tie in an eight game series. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Imagine that like this, these days, an eight game series, like uh, between the two hockey powerhouses, that would, that would, I mean, if that started out like the kind of the Olympics where it's like not a lot of physicality and stuff, it would end as a bloodbath. I think even today. And it, it was, was a bloodbath like, I, I, then. Yeah. I heard stories about it. <laughs> um, and that, that kind of ties in well with, with my kind of my favorite legacy. And Steve, you mentioned it a little bit as well, the effect it had on the NHL. Not only did it help raise the salaries in the NHL, but it, it kind of, it set a precedent. So in previous episodes, we've talked about the reserve clause in baseball, which basically was, hey, the team owns your rights, the team can re-sign you, you're never a free agent, you never really can choose where you want to go. That existed in hockey too. And part of the reason that NHL teams weren't letting, so when these players like Hall and Sanderson and Perrant signed with the World Hockey Association, the NHL teams wouldn't let them play, claiming that they, the reserve clause barred them from doing it. So the, the Blazers... I'm, I'm almost saying phantoms now. So the Blazers sued the NHL and the Philadelphia Flyers, I think. Uh, and though, even though the case was never decided, the judge filed, I, I think what's called an injunction, basically telling the NHL, like, hey, listen, this isn't legal for now. We're, we're going to keep you guys from doing it. And then uh, once the case is decided or once you guys settle, that'll be the ultimate decider. But he kind of suggested, I think, I, I read this in, uh, um, I forget where, I think it was New York Times. He kind of suggested that, to the NHL that he would, that he was going to, if this went to trial, that he was going to find in favor of the, of the Blazers and the WHA. So the NHL kind of got rid of their reserve clause and that's basically what did it. This, this lawsuit, this injunction that the judge did that, that allowed, and then Hull and Sanderson, all those guys were allowed to play in the WHA. So that was a huge thing. And now the, uh, the reserve clause was no more after that in hockey. So that's a pretty, pretty enduring, uh, legacy to leave if you're just a, a team that only played for one season kind of the opposite of what the um the team in our previous episode the the washington or baltimore terrapins did in baseball yeah we we need to talk about some shit show teams once in a while <laughs> yeah yeah like i said it, it just goes to show you though with the blazers that um even if things are done as clunky as it was uh, amazing things come out of just this one season team that was bought by a, a two people that didn't sound like they knew very much what they were doing, but thought they knew everything. That's kind of where yeah. I got from from the Philadelphia Blazers. I can't imagine the egos on those two guys. Yeah, huge egos throwing money around like crazy, and as it turns out, yeah. it turned out to, it was to be kind of the beginning as. Uh, Deli is saying it's kind of the beginning of players being able to have a little bit of say and uh, some some power in uh, being able to do contracts and so on and so forth like that. Uh, using so their leverage as their talent to be able to do well for themselves. Do you think this helped form the NHLPA? It certainly probably had something to do with it. Um, yeah. it, it certainly shone a light on the necessity of something right. like that happening. Uh, maybe I would say gave a lot of players a confidence to know, hey, you know what? <laughs> Wait a second here. I am talented yeah. and I am important here. I These these people are making a lot of money on my back. And uh, right. I would say it would definitely, I can't say 
for sure. I don't have anything to say uh, to, to uh, I don't have any actual facts about that, but it would appear to me that, that it, it became huge. Uh, it really yeah, did so, give players the confidence to be able to say, wait a second, you know, uh, this is, this isn't right. What, what happened with Derek and it brought up the conversation quite a bit. I think it coincided. So uh, the NHL players association was formed in 1967, obviously a notorious name, uh, that you can read a little more about in Sanderson's biography. And if you're a hockey historian, you know a lot about Alan Eagleson. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Helped start it in, right. 60, in 67. But uh, it, this was, what, 72 or 70? I think this was 72 we're talking about, uh, five years later. So I think this had a huge impact in the power. Uh, it shifted the, the balance of power, I think, from the league to the and the teams to the PA uh, significantly. Then right. Eagleson just ripped off every player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then Eagleson went and turned into, I mean, maybe he already was a scumbag, but became a criminal. Right. <laughs> yeah, I forgot it had already been in place at that time. And you think about it, it had already been in place and they still had so little leverage as players. Uh, but this probably went a long way to bringing that, uh, bringing some light to them to be able to say, wait a sec, we got more leverage than we thought. Hey, and then what's the lesson for all those children listening out there? Don't prepare for anything. Just do everything on a whim and it might work out for you. Yeah, don't think about it at all. (laughs) Your homework, the dishes, your chores, job interviews, just fly by the seat of your pants through life. It seems to be the theme here because Sanderson kind of was that type of person here. That kind of person that flied by the seat of the pants and did this as well. The owners seem to be flying by the seat of their pants. And even I have a quote here that you might want to fill in that um, Perrant, he, here's a quote out of his, uh, out of his book that I got again from wealth simple magazine. He said, I didn't work when I was younger. I hated working. Einstein said, imagination is more important than education. So imagination was a big part of my life growing up. So, <laughs> so there you go, kids, you can be a Perrant too. Just imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine yourself succeeding. That sounds really familiar. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, we anything else to add? Uh, anything else about the Blazers? About uh, Steve? You? What do you? Uh, so you're how? How are you doing with uh, Pearls of Wisdom? And uh, where can people find you on Twitter and and elsewhere? Uh, I my main project right now is something called www.steelflyers.com, all sports network. You can find all my work on there that I do on YouTube. Uh, you can go to the YouTube channel if you want, Pearls of Wisdom, my NHL Pearls of Wisdom on, on YouTube. But that www.steelflyers.com, it's an all sports network that's going to entail every sport, just like it says, and every team in every sport. I'm going to be doing a live uh, weekly program to start, which could end up being a daily program there. And uh, it's going to be a live feed all the way through it for every team, all the time, um, every every single day. I'm really excited about it. It's going to be a lot of fun. We have Flyers Nitty Gritty. That I don't know if you ever heard about that, but it's part of it. Bill Meltzer's part of it. Um, Jim Jackson from the Philadelphia Flyers who do who works for NBC. He's going to be part of it. It's uh, there wow. is a, we started with the Philadelphia Flyers, but we're expanding to all teams and we're really excited about it. So that sounds like an awesome project. Yeah. I've been, I, I just kind of fell into it. I met a fellow named Jamie Basco. I promoted him as a writer uh, way back in the day. He liked me and then he introduced me to this and I was like, okay, 
I'll do that. So we're, I'm having a lot of fun with it. So yeah, you can find me there or, and you can find me at, uh, um, pearls, WW, or sorry, pearls of wisdom on, uh, Twitter as well. Awesome. Andrew, how about you? What you, what you got going besides the podcast? Uh, not much going on. Just living that <laughs> COVID life, man. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, you can find me at A-W-L-E-N-N, A-W-L-E-N. Awesome. And give us all feedback. I mean, uh, uh, feedback about what teams you want to hear about. Give us five stars or whatever review, maybe zero stars if you want on the podcast apps or reviews. Just tell us. We, we want some feedback. We want to make this show better for you. Uh, tell your friends as well if you think this might be a, a good thing for them. We want, we want to get listeners and we want to create a product or a, that people like. So that'll do it for another episode of the Lost Teams podcast. As always, you can find me at Delhi Tweets. That's D-E-L-L-I-T-W-E-E-T-S on Twitter. Tell me how much you like the show. Tell me how much you don't like the show. Or Andrew, tell anybody. <laughs> tell your friends, like I said. Uh, and you, by the time this gets released, you'll be able to hear me also probably another episode of the Totally Offsides podcast. So have a good one. We'll talk to you later. Have a great one, guys. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.